Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to another great session. Today we have Richard Hawks. Richard is a founder of Growth Weaver, an international consultancy that works with leaders and teams to help create higher performance. Welcome, Richard. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's terrific to be here. Richard, to begin with, could you take us back and share with us your backstory? So I've been consulting with senior leadership teams and organizations to help grow and scale their companies for about 30 years. Um, I've worked all around the world. I've worked with all different kinds of companies and leadership teams. And I've worked with, you know, including all different size companies from a couple people in a startup to hundreds of thousands of people. I'm thinking back, my very first client was a client in business school and they were, they were a company that burned dirt. And uh, so, so there was something called leaking underground storage tanks, lusts for short, and their job, they built this giant oven and they would dirt it on one side and it would burn the dirt and it would come out the other side. And they, had, they were dreaming of this, of building a, a large business out of it. And uh, so they hired me while I was in business school to write them a business plan. And I wrote a massive 150, 160 page business plan. And I brought it to them and their jaws dropped and I completely and totally overwhelmed them. And that was sort of my, my very first consulting experience. And what I learned from the beginning is I needed to break things down. You can overwhelm people. Businesses are complex. Uh, doing this work is complex. Being on a journey with your client, it, you have to own the relationship and you have to guide the relationship and you have to be responsible for the nature of the relationship. And so flash forward a few years and I'm now, I've, at, at this point, I've actually worked uh, in a consulting firm and I've been trained and developed and run a strategy practice and other things. And I'm starting to develop my own tools to do this. And I, I hung up a shingle at an incubator in, you know, a, a business incubator in New Jersey, um, kind of like Lucy and Peanuts where there's, you know, the doctor is in, I had an office and a desk and there were uh, a, a whole bunch of companies there and the leaders would, would, would have a certain number of hours they could spend with me every week and come in and just kind of discuss what was going on in their business. And one of those companies were two the two leaders of the company were starting a DNA sequencing company. They started it by in a, in a, in a garage, literally, renting uh, DNA sequencing equipment. And now they were building their business. And I started working with them. Uh, I worked with them over about an arc of around 22 years. Um, and the way we started that entire journey was very simple. I had a, a construct, which is in, in my book, uh, it's called the business triangle. 
And we simply applied this value stream construct to every two weeks or so, we'd identify what's the current primary constraint to growth in the business. And we would also, you know, kind of get clear about, you know, what capabilities we're missing, gaps, this kind of thing. And out of that journey, right, continuously identifying primary constraints and working deeper and deeper into the system from, you know, where are they in the capabilities to where are they in the roles to where are they in the culture to where are they in the, 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 the creation of competitive advantage, right, F following that trail. Um, I actually developed a, a, a pretty comprehensive roadmap for growing and scaling a company. And we grew that company from four scientists in a lab to hundreds of, of scientists to one of the largest companies in the world and leader in our space um, with labs all across China, all across Europe. Um, I, my role changed from... Uh, and getting on the board of directors to us ultimately selling the company. And, uh, and along every step of the way, I kind of revised this way of thinking about companies and growing and scaling them and breaking things down into very specific choice points. Richard, and as you were asking this question about the primary constraint to growth, what were some common answers and how those answers evolved over time as company became bigger and bigger? So when I started, I was holding a bunch of different ideas. So I had, I was sort of thinking about a, of a company almost like a machine, right? So, you know, this flows into that processes and I was holding that kind of view. And then over here, I was holding another view, which was, hey, let's remember, you know, there are actually people here. Let's remember there are people here. And then there was sort of another perspective, which is let's think about strategy. So these were almost like different worlds, parallel worlds, you know, that you, you pick up and you, you kind of, I'll use this lens, I'll use this lens and I'll use this lens. And over time, those lens, lenses really began to converge because it's actually the connections between them where, where they get really, really interesting. And so, so when you're a leader in a company, you don't see strategy as different from structure, as different from you know the culture. You're actually you know most much more practical. You're like, look, I've got to do this, and to do this, I have these people available to me for you know with for me, and those people who are available for me can think in these ways. And so often, what strategy actually follows structure and culture. It doesn't start with it. Now, consultants will come in and tell you it starts there. But when you're, when you're in the reality, I mean, I don't know many leaders who are able to clean the slate and start with a new team. I know they can dream about it, but you're stuck with the people that you have and the organization that you have. You have to evolve that. So to answer your question really specifically, the constraints that you have in a small business Right, are, are, you have to be very, very practical. You have to be very clear about the limitations for what you can and cannot do. And then you have to be laser focused on creating breakthroughs within those because uh, it's very easy to lose time. And it's very easy to overwhelm a small system. There's only so much people can do. When you get into larger companies, it kind of flips to the other side. Now you've got people who are competing to prove that they can add value. 
And they, you know, because because a large company is like a, I don't know, it's like an oil tanker. I mean, it's really hard. Let me put it this way. It's really hard. Once it's in momentum, you have to work very, very hard to, to destroy a successful large company. The momentum is just absolutely massive and the layers of systems within systems. So what happens is, is it becomes a place where politics begin to play out. And the politics have a logic of their own. And, and, and navigating that logic actually becomes, and, and, and influencing in that world often becomes the challenge. Um, the way these different things came together, these different worlds came together, was with the realization that if you, you, you know, it's like solving any problem, any constraint, when you identify it, you have to know what kind of system you're talking about. Because once you figure out what kind of system it is, then you can actually define the problem. And the way you frame the problem gives you the answers. It allow, and it particularly allows you to communicate it in such a way that you're not doing it alone. You're actually doing it with other people. And what I found was the best way to define it is actually, even though it's tempting to define an organization or a business or a team almost through a mechanistic construct, like it's a machine, it's way better to think of it as a social system. And when you realize it's a social system, when you realize that system has very specific layers in it, leadership and culture, and you know, followed by capabilities and value streams or structure, and then followed by strategy and customer experience, when you realize that the change in that system unfolds in that direction, not the opposite way. In other words, you know, the, the Peter Drucker expression. Um, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you try to change a culture through strategy, you're swimming upstream. If you start with leadership and work your way down through culture and work your way down through structure, it will, it will un unleash people's potential to create strategies. And then you don't actually have to do all the command and control thinking to do strategies. You can actually create a context in which strategy is an emergent property and it's about, and, and people are actually able to practice distributed leadership where they're all playing full out from the perspective of their role and they're doing it for the good of the whole and they understand the whole, they understand, they're able to be in a conversation where they understand where are the constraints in the system? What are we trying to solve together? How do we talk about that? And then how do I bring the best in my role to do all that together? So it's a pretty big answer to what you asked, but did, I mean, did I answer your question? Yes, Richard. And I was thinking as you were working with businesses who are just starting out and with businesses who are incredibly successful already, what have you noticed in terms of differences in mindset? of the business leaders of those businesses of various sizes. Maybe even specific to the company you mentioned that went from zero to becoming a very large company. In terms of the mindset of the founders, for them yes. to go from a very small company to a very large company, how they needed to change. Organizations um, go through very distinct stages as they grow and scale. And by following where the constraints are, I identified four of them. And 
Each of them requires quite a different mindset. It actually requires a different structure and it has different implications for strategy, the way the system evolves. So the, the, the thing to know is that the reason organizations, the reason leaders have to change their mindset and the reason organizations need to shift um, is, is, is often out of necessity. And it's out of the necessity of dealing with increasing levels of complexity. So what happens is, is your mindset needs to evolve and your structure needs to evolve and your strategies need to evolve to deal with these higher and higher levels of complexity that naturally emerge as you are successful. So the first stage is, is something called the independent contributor stage. And what happens in that is, is usually there's a, a, a group of uh, individuals who come together and they, they kind of create a loose confederation. And everything is consensus-driven leadership for the most part, or they're influencing each other. There's, there's often a, a backdrop of power, but, but that's what they're doing. And what they'll come together is they'll, they'll combine their back offices. So a law firm usually works this way. A consulting firm almost always works this way. And they come together and they say, you know, we'll combine our back office, but you know what? You have your clients and I have my clients, but we're going to share advertising. We might give each other leads, that kind of thing. Then what happens is there's an event. And the event usually is a warning signal or, or where everybody realizes that they actually need somebody to have final call on decisions that have to do with strategic priorities, um, on holding people accountable for, for their commitments. Because what everybody's realized is, is that if we're all doing our own thing, we never get, we never really move forward in a way that we're able to create sustainable competitive advantage. And we're not gonna, we're not gonna survive if we don't do that. So there's this inflection point. Then what happens is, uh, is they move, so they move from that first stage to a second stage. And the second stage is something I call directive leadership. Directive leadership, the whole point is you wanna nail and scale a single business model. So going back to the, company I was sharing, the one I was with over the 18 years, when we started out, the two founders really were, they saw each other as, uh, and acted as peers. And in fact, they made all the decisions together and they'd get together. And then we started reaching a level of complexity and they, they realized that the, the conflicts between them, the perspective of where the organization needed to go, they weren't reconciling those and it was confusing their organization. And one of them needed to have final call around a few key decisions, like who plays what role within the system roles, what are overall strategic priorities, investment priorities, that kind of thing. So one of the two founders, they both own 50% of the company. One of the two founders bought 10% from the other one. And then now, then he had 60%, she had 40%. He became the CEO, she became the COO, and we clarified that. And that moved us into this next stage. And then I began to work with him and we, well, we all began to work with him around now taking all the choices that they had made and all the learning that they had done and really reconciling that into a single scalable business model. So we started working our way through that and we started scaling. And, and we were really successful with the single business model. We proved it out. In fact, one of the things we decided to do 
is we decided to go to the most competitive market in the country and intentionally open a lab there because we figured that if we could find a way to have competitive advantage in that market, then we could scale that everywhere. So we actually chose the most difficult place to go. And then in, in, a, in a pretty disciplined way, we created a business model that enabled us to, you know, to, to basically provide higher quality in less time for at a lower cost for our services in that market. And then we decided to scale. That was stage two. Then we moved to stage three. And I have to tell you, stage three for the owners was moving from stage two to stage three was way harder than moving from stage one to stage two. Because stage three is distributed leadership. What started to happen is, is now we're opening up labs and we're growing. And now suddenly you, it isn't one business anymore. Suddenly it's a portfolio of businesses and a portfolio of capabilities serving those businesses. And the leader's role now moves from being a business leader to being an enterprise leader with different leaders for each of the businesses. So he's now operating at a whole level of abstraction. And the COO is also now operating across all the silos, functional silos that are now serving these multiple businesses, by the way, in multiple countries and time zones. So we just whole exponential level of complexity. That's moving to a matrix organization. And when you move from a directive leadership organization to a distributed leadership organization, that is a matrix, you're now in the world of high-performing teams. Now your basic unit of scalability has become teams. And so the, so the entire leadership mindset changes. It isn't about giving orders. It's about creating a context within which other people show up and they're leading with their, with their teams. So we worked our way um, through, that, through that stage. And it was in that stage we actually um, then sold the company. The stage after that is really an evolution of that matrix. And, and, and you'll see the stage after that um, in a bunch of tech companies today, but it's, it's not, it, it, not, there are companies that claim they're doing this next stage, but there are very few that have actually been successful with it. And the stage is something called leaders leading leaders. And that's where the challenge is, is that as you start to get a large company with lots and lots of teams going, every team needs a leader. And when every team needs a leader that, that's running that specific team, then what happens is, is that that gets very expensive, but it also begins to create lots of hierarchical levels. And so what you have to do is you have to go to a self-managed team construct, but the self-managed team, you can only do that once all the skills and processes have been built to actually sustain the right behaviors in, in, in the organization. And so, um, because, because then what you end up with is you end up with one leader who's leading multiple teams and a lot of the leadership responsibilities of that team, of that leader have been taken over by the team. And it's easy to mess that up because you can easily just pour, you, you can, if you move too quickly, if you move ahead of the organization's capabilities and skill set. It can be like pouring concrete over cow pets. You end up with roads that don't make any sense. You, 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 you've got to, um, you got to be very careful that, that people have the skill sets and the mindsets to operate in that environment 
Um, another way of looking at it is culture is what people do when no one is telling them what to do. Sometimes you can be really surprised what you discover when the leaders back off and stop telling everybody what to do. And you find out that the culture never really had evolved. It was just being kept in check. It hadn't actually become integral. But those are the four, those are the four stages. Um, and each one of them really requires a very different, very different mindset, level of sophistication. Um, and many leaders don't make that journey. Going from stage you know, one with the independent contributors to stage two, I've run into leaders who they just were not comfortable being on the hook for, for a scalable business model and really doing that. And they had to you know, put someone else in charge and step back, founders in particular. And I've seen stage two to stage three, directive leadership to distributed leadership. Um, it's, it's very common for, leader, for senior leaders uh, not to be able to make that jump because they've developed such a directive leadership style to move to uh, the kind of decision-making style, which isn't a directive decision-making, but it's actually consultative decision-making is, uh, is really hard when you move to that next stage. Um, I'm working right now, um, have been my team and I for about the last four years with a large company, about 50,000 people moving, helping them move from stage two to stage three. Um, a new leader came into the organization and, you know, with the explicit uh, mandate to, to actually do that. Um, the previous leader was highly effective in stage two and the company had been in stage two for probably almost a hundred years. And now because the world has gotten so complex, they really have no choice. If they're going to drive any you know, um, digital transformation, um, virtual work, hybrid workplaces, uh, all of these kinds of things require you to have it, to really implement them well, require that kind of distributed leadership, that the capabilities around that. Um, and uh, we've been working closely with her to do it. And it's a, you know, it, like any major transformation initiative, it's, it's, it's big and, and complex and, you would, you know, um, but I'm just, uh, I continue to be impressed uh, with her phenomenal leadership, um, especially her capacity to build the trust that's required and, and, you know, to align people so that, so that they stay positive and stay engaged in, in those sort of major transformational changes. Richard, and for those listeners and viewers who are currently individual contributors and they want to develop themselves as leaders to grow their company and don't get stuck being small, what advice would you give them? Um, so I, I founded four consulting firms, I think. Depends on how you count. Um, but the first three uh, I made the mistake of, of going, either choosing the wrong partners for me or going in treating it like we were gonna do consensus-based decision-making. And with my current company, um, I started from the very beginning 
and you know setting up a structure where I put myself on the spot to actually have to move things to stage two. And some of the folks I'd worked with in the prior companies came with me. Others were not able to make that change. But lead, you know, growing and scaling a company is an inside-out journey. It, it starts with you and your own leader, your own choices about how you're going to lead. And I just think that's, you know, for small companies, that's the hardest one, um, which is which is learning to actually lead to keep your site set on a scalable uh, business model and you know testing and validating it in the in the marketplace um, and and not letting others who who have their own they, they have their own perspective on how it would work but like for all of us you know we all come from our own strengths and we all come from the role that we play and the roles that we we, we prefer to play and um and the fact is, 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 is ultimately things need to reconcile if you're a founder in the direction of, of you. It's not about controlling or dominating other people, but it is about creating a context that's going to work. And then it's about building a real team. I guess that I could summarize all that by saying, you know, build a real team. Build a team that is in it with you and has your back. Um, and I also, you know, building a company is a lot of, a lot of late nights and, and you know, you, it, the work doesn't end. Um, you know, it's easy to become crushed by that to the point that you, you know, you can, people can find themselves almost victimized by their own company. <laughs> and so you have to create a context in which you have a team that can support you in that so you don't get to that place. You stay in a positive, engaged, and creative place. And, and then you can do it. Richard, and in observing business leaders trying to move from individual contributor to the next stage, what have you noticed are the most common mistakes they make? Most of it has to do with conflict resolution. Here's how it feels when you're in stage one. You're in the middle of the ocean and you're treading water and you're alone, right? So you're treading water, treading water, treading water. And along comes a, a, a board or a piece of wood or whatever, and you grab that. And then along comes another piece and you grab that. And then maybe some fishing line comes along and you grab that. And you, you keep putting everything together and then eventually, you get a raft that you can stand on. Now, the way that really looks is this person comes by and you cut a deal with them because you don't have any money or resources. You're, you're cutting a deal and you find yourself with different deals with everybody and different relationships and different accommodations and all of that. And you finally have a raft, you can stand on it. And somebody comes along and they tell you, why did you do it that way? And you think, what do you mean? I was just, I, I've been just figuring it out. I've been just very practically trying to actually get a raft that I could stand on. And that's what it's like in, in that first phase. 
And that's kind of why going to the next one is so hard because now you've got a raft to stand on and you're starting to get enough resources to imagine an integrated business model. And you, you have to reset. You have to be able to go back and, and, and kind of uh, renegotiate all those relationships, uh, be willing to rethink how you do things, be willing to have others engage with it. And so it leads you to a completely different place. So it leads you to a completely different kind of, um, you know, state, that next stage is completely different. But that's what it feels like to be in stage one. Did I answer your question specifically? I, the mistakes are, I guess the answer is, is that if you're really, really focused on cobbling together all of that raft, you're gonna ev later, everything you did, a lot of what you've done in the past is gonna look like mistakes to other people. And, and it's really easy for them to say that they're mistakes, but that's not the way it is on the ground. Um, and so just be kind <laughs> to yourself because most of them, a lot of the mistakes are necessary mistakes. Yeah, you, you just, right? And, and most, when you're building a company, a lot of the people you start with, um, some will be able to come on the whole journey with you. That would be great. Um, and many won't. And, and the reason they may have joined you at the beginning of the journey is they clearly had needs for them that were being met and you had needs that were being met for you. But as companies grow like, and the context changes, your needs are gonna change. And you, you know, I think the other big mistake um, or mistake that people can make is, is not really being clear with everyone that relationships are gonna shift and you can be very clear with people and do that with an awful lot of integrity. And you can find yourself further along in the journey and you can still have terrific relationships with the people who, who left. Um, and I just think, I think that's probably the hardest part when I talk to and support these leaders is they, they, they often feel quite terrible about how the situation and the context changed and, um, and how they actually didn't resolve whatever way people were feeling about it when they had to take, make the tough calls in order to do that. Thank you, Richard. Switching gears a little bit, I know that you spent some time in Germany. Yes. And I know that when you live in different countries, it really impacts the way you see the world you have new ways of looking at things, you have experiences that others don't have. I was wondering if you could share with us, how did living in Germany impacted the way you view the world, the way you approach your consulting practice, building your consulting firm and so on? So we moved over to, my, we moved my whole family over to Germany um, for, for a couple of years. I'll just simply say, uh, what would it be now? I'm coming up with my 33rd wedding anniversary. So that would have, so this conversation probably would have been over 40 years ago, which is terrifying to me. But my wife and I, after say two bottles of wine discussing about whether we'd ever get married and if we ever had kids, decided, we sort of made a promise to each other that we'd want our kids before they went to high school to live outside of the country so they could actually 
enter high school with open minds around the world. This is a commitment we made to each other. So we found ourselves uh, uh, 2007 or so realizing that our oldest daughter was going to be at that stage. And we had to ask, well, are we going to keep this promise we made to each other? And so we decided we would, and we decided to risk it with our family. And so we decided to, uh, to move to Germany for, for a period of time. And when we put that out there in the world, we thought, you know, this is really risky. What's going to happen? And what happened was kind of amazing. All these opportunities suddenly popped up, including my wife's company saying, you know what, we'll send you. We'll send you and, and, and you can do that. So we found ourselves there. And um, I found myself with six extra hours a day to, to, because I couldn't talk to my clients during those, those six extra hours. And I was flying back and forth a lot. And so uh, I thought, well, why not build a consulting firm in Germany? So I networked my way around and I, I, I found uh, these two guys who were really, really interested. Um, they didn't have any consulting experience per se. They had business experience and sales experience. Um, and they absolutely had the kind of mindset that really connects with people. And so, so that was quite wonderful. And um, so I, I started training them around, around how to do this work. Um, all those ideas, you know, like primary constraints and the stages of companies and a bunch of the other things. And so we started doing this. And um, so we, so what would happen is, is that I would go do lead client things in the US and then I'd come back and they would schedule these grand sales tours. So they would line up 30 meetings, 40 meetings, and I'd get back to Germany and then we would travel around Germany. And I would have to, in my uh, imperfect German, I speak it fluently, but I'm still an American and it's, there's all these cultural differences. I'd have to stand up and kind of pitch and, um, and try to create a relationship of trust, often with these third, second or third generation business owners because it's almost all family-owned businesses over there. And I learned an awful lot. One of the things I learned, um, I, I learned how to work with my partners there so that we were actually selling together and creating these trusted relationships with our clients together. Secondly, I learned the incredible power of mapping out the journey you want to take somebody on and being completely transparent from the beginning that this is the journey. So that what happens is, is that you can actually say, this is what we want to do. And they go, yeah, that's where we want to go. And then you say, okay, here's where we are on it. And, you know, and then you, you iteratively assess, you know, do we want to course correct? Are we going into the right place? And that kind of a construct, even anywhere in, in the, these relationships is incredibly powerful. And what's even better is that that enabled me with my colleagues I was able to dip in and dip out. I'd go do something else, come back. So here we are. That was in 2009. And here we are. And uh, we have a thriving consulting business in Germany, as well as my business, the consulting business here. Um, I was there last October. They came out with a book um, based on the methodology that I uh, introduced to them, and then they adapted it to their local market. And now it's really very, pretty laser focused on um, 
Mittelstand, the, the family-owned businesses in, in, in Germany. Um, and then, you know, I came out with my book here and now we're integrating both of them back and forth. And it's all, it's really, really fun. It's just a, it's a great uh, thing. And so the one other thing I would add to it is that it's really hard to build a, in fact, it's foolish to try to build a company alone. But if you can create the right kind of relationships, like where these guys, you know, they're working on their book, they're sending me copies of it. I'm working on my book. I'm sending them copies of that. Both of us are doing our own thing. We're able to build, you know, write what we want, how we want, but we're, there's a, there's a back and forth, there's feedback, there's a, there's a collaboration going on. Not just with the book, but with the products, with the services, with the, when you're able to create that kind of a, of a collaboration, um, especially as you begin to develop a shared language with, with the other, you know, whomever you, the community you've built around it, it just makes things so easy and fun. And, and so I, I think those are sort of my key, the key things I could, yeah. And it should be fun. It's yeah. all about the journey, this moment. This is what is, our life is happening right now. So I'm so glad that it's going well for you. Thank you. Business you started in Germany. And the next question I will ask is for viewers and listeners who either want to start their own consulting firm or already started, but they are kind of struggling to get it going. And the question I wanted to ask you, and you are a perfect person to ask this question because you have done it multiple times. If you had to again start a consulting firm from scratch and you could not use your current network and your current thought leadership, your current assets, and you had 90 days to lay out a foundation for a long-term successful business that will serve clients and add value and generate profit, what would you do? Yeah, it's interesting. The tools I have available to me now are very different when I, than when I started. Um, but today I'm a big advocate of design thinking and a big advocate of agile. Um, I would really lean into that. I, you know, let's say, let's say I can't use anything and I've got to start from scratch. Um, I would start by following, you know, you know, something like the, the big idea canvas, which, which, you know, or the, uh, because they're just really, really powerful ways of thinking about this. And the place to start is figuring out who your target customer is. And the thing is, is you have to do that without ego. Yeah, and you have to do it without fear. And by that, what I mean is, is the fear is, is that, and as a consultant, the fear is going to be, you're going to be asked to do something. You're selling yourself. You feel like you're selling your, your own skills. So you, there, it's easy to be afraid you're going to be asked to do something you don't know how to do. And that's going to make you look foolish. And so that fear, at least for me personally, made it really hard for a long time for me to, to uh, you know, I would meet with, with, with a, a leader and I'd go back and go, oh, what do they really need? You know, what could they need from me? And today what I'd be able to hear is I'd really be able to focus in on what they're really looking for. And then I would actually be totally open. I'd design a solution and I'd go advocate it to them. And the, the fact is, is that what one of the other things that's kind of amazing is, is that I've discovered that if you prototype things, like, like if you come up with, I don't know, you're, you're doing org redesign and everybody's fighting over where it needs to look like, and your job is to be the consultant to solve it. 
Don't wait for them to give you a solution. If they can't decide, come back with something you know they're going to say is totally wrong, right? Because they're all fighting with each other. Come back with something you know they're going to say is totally wrong. You know it's going to push all their buttons. Make sure it's viable. This isn't just about, you know, right? But a viable solution that's going to really upset them. And tell them. And then say, what, tell me what's wrong with it. And then as they engage to tell you what's wrong with it, they're gonna, they're gonna actually reveal what they really do want and then you have a place to start. But that's just that design thinking process kind of turned on its head a little bit. Um, who's your customer? What do they want? Be provocative about, you know, you've got to figure out what they really want even when they don't. And the only way to do that is by creating things they can say yes or say no to. And then you can iterate in version. And that's how you can get there. And so the 90 days, um, you know, uh, I don't know if it would take 90 days. It could, but it could take four days if you if 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 you had if you were able to come up with something that was a small enough, minimal viable solution after meeting with somebody that would actually compel them to truly share what they needed. And then without fear, if you were able to then just engage in trying to solve that and follow that to, you know, to the actual need, you'll find the consulting business. You'll find, because what is consulting? I mean, why, why do you hire a consultant? You hire a consultant because you need a thought partner. You don't need another pair of hands. You need a thought partner. And what you're dreaming about when a consultant comes in is you're dreaming that they're going to come in and they're going to take the swirl of all the stuff that's going on and all, you know, this person says this, and this person says that, or even your own inner conversation, and they're gonna organize it. And it doesn't mean they're gonna come up with the exact solution, but they're gonna organize it enough that you can start to see a pathway through it. And if they can be on that pathway through it with you, and they can take the heavy lifting off your shoulders so that you can be doing your job and be confident that you're making progress against the big things that are on your mind, You'll engage them indefinitely because it's you'll create a relationship with them. Richard, and how could you get those initial meetings? What would you do? So I have to go back to your challenge, right? So your challenge was uh, no, uh, no network, no reputation, yes. no methodology, just human. And, 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 and that's it. You, you actually, um, so first of all, you just reach out to the people that you know, or maybe I guess in this case, I don't know anybody. Just go find people. If you want to go into consulting, at a minimum, you know that they're going to be in business. Uh, if you can find the business leaders, not like the people who are at the center of the business, the perspective that you have to hold when you are actually the one accountable for the entire business system, social system and all, is a different perspective than anyone else in the system has. You go anywhere in the world, you ask the people in a business who work on in the sales capabilities of the business, you ask, you, you ask people what they think of those people, they're going to tell you they'll sell anything, they don't really care whether we can produce it. Same story shows up everywhere in the world. If you go to people on the selling part of a business and on the delivering part of the business, and you ask them about people who are in the 
developing part of the business, the ones who develop products and services, they'll tell you the exact same stories. They're lost in their models and they're unrealistic. They're only focused on creating possibility. And if you ask the people on the developing side and on the sell side about people on the deliver side, they're gonna tell you the exact same stories. They're inflexible. They're only interested in kind of a scalable solution. So what happens is, is the role that people play in a business shapes the way in which they define success for the business. But it also shapes all the critiques everyone else has around it. And usually the problems aren't the people, the problems are in the system and it's in the way in which those roles are defined. Okay, so you're looking at all that. So there was this uh, business leader who I was asked to work with. She was the head of sales at a pretty large pharma company. And um, she, had a, she, she was really frustrated. She wasn't just a head of sales, she was head of, of niche sales for these high value customers. And she's very frustrated because the guys on the, on the develop side were refusing to create products and services that were customized for her customers. And the guys on the, on the deliver side were saying, we can't produce that. We, we don't make any money on that. Why would we do that for your customers? So she was really frustrated. And then they, so they then promoted her to be the business leader. And so she was just done. She's like, all right. And she, now she was the boss. So she told the develop guys what they were going to develop. She told the, the operations guys what they were going to produce. And when I started coaching her, the business was losing money and market share and really start cycling down because they now had non-scalable products. And what she hadn't realized is her job had changed. The role she now was playing was business leader. And her job was not to represent the sales perspective or any of the other perspectives. It was to represent the business leader perspective. And the business leader perspective is about getting all of those roles to play with each other because every, any solution you're gonna to bring to market has to work from all those perspectives at the same time. If you wanna know the highest leverage consulting uh, solutions, find the business leader who's responsible for owning the whole system. Engage with them. And if you can then have enough of a conversation with them that you can, and just ask them a you know, question, you know, what's really on your mind? And how can I help you get clear about it? And it might be as simple as listening to them, taking recording, coming back with a, with a reflection, a mirror of what, what they're saying, you know, what the implications of it are, just a write-up, a narrative. Because the thing is, is that the people who are in that role as a business leader, they, can't they often cannot actually talk to anybody in their organization where it's a politics-free zone because every one of those roles is going to have its own perspective. And, they're, and, they're, and anything they suggest, any ideas that they float are going to have implications for somebody. And a lot of people will be doing kind of a winner-loser calculation. One of the things that we do with every team we work with at all different levels, so for, you know, enterprise team, uh, it's got seven people in it, I'm just making this up, or nine people in the team. We'll go to the leader and we'll help them create a change team. What are the, who are the one or two people on this team that you're comfortable at having a politics-free zone with? Who are the few, who's the subset of players that we can actually 
openly talk about the journey that we're on and not worry about people getting some kind of way about it. And you do that with every team. And often, you know, for leaders, that's actually the role of the consultant is it's meant to be a politics-free zone for you to be able to actually create and test and validate solutions that you really don't have the space to do with your team. And it doesn't mean you have a bad team and it doesn't mean anybody's out of control. It just, it's human nature. It's the fact that it's really hard for us to separate out, um, particularly with big complex decisions, you know, to keep the dialogue about what's it gonna do to me under control. And so that's where I'd start. I just find a leader, make sure they're, they're taking that perspective as a business leader and then engage with them and learn really what's on their mind. And then that'll actually unlock consulting. And the one other thing I'll say is that I've done consulting all different levels and right. Um, an organization is a multi-stakeholder system, right? And in that system, people have two kinds of power. They have the power to promote and the power to block. So if you're, and, and, and from your perspective, it's the power to promote you and your services as a consultant and the power to block you and your services as a consultant. So what you wanna do is step back and identify who are the players in the system Right, so there's you know there's the business leader, there's the head of finance, there's the IT leader. This actually will work for any any context, but I'm just using it in a senior context. And then you, you so you get all the you know list all the players, and then ask yourself which ones have the most power to promote, power to block, and sequence them. What you'll discover is if you can influence and create strong relationships with the people who have the greatest power to promote and block in the system, all the, you can actually influence the rest of the system in such a way that this is influencing, not controlling. And this is influencing without authority, it's borrowed authority. But what happens is, is that it does then create a forum where your ideas can be heard. And that allows you to you know, really magnify whatever influence you're gonna have. You have to be crystal clear about who in the system, the social system, what roles are the key to unlocking the whole system. Richard, and you earlier mentioned that it is foolish to build a business alone. So with this challenge, at which point would you look for partners and what specifically would you search for in your partners? You know, if I were, I tried to go, I created a business, uh, one of the consulting businesses that I created, it wasn't one of the ones that I was mentioning before, but I, after I had been in one where the relationships with my partners just didn't work out. Um, and it was kind of funny, this is back when, when internet stocks were doing really well and my partners were making more money betting on internet stocks than they were in our consulting business. So they were, they started day trading. Like we were running engage, we were running engagements and they're day trading. And I thought, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I was a lot younger than they were. And I thought, you know, this is just not right for me. So, um, so I left that. And then I thought I need to do something on my own. And I came up with a, with a name of a consulting firm that, that 
was not intended to represent anyone but myself. And I didn't want to put my name on it. I wanted it just to just be, so I, I, I called it Crazy Growth. What was really funny about the name Crazy Growth is I could, at that time, I couldn't say it without kind of smiling and feeling a little ridiculous. So, so um, but what was hilarious is that it turns out that with some of my Asian clients, um, particularly a Japanese company, they, I guess the word crazy means something significantly different. And they thought it was a brilliant name to the point that even after I stopped working with them, they kept me on their agenda. Like they called the report, you know, that they were doing the crazy growth report. It was absolutely hilarious. Anyway, the point was, is I did that because I needed to feel comfortable leading on my own. And so whatever you need to do to get to a place where you can be comfortable leading on your own and, and comfortable in your own skin around it, you need to get there because, because you got to know yourself in order to really have meaningful relationships, work relationships with other people. So do that work, whether it's getting coaching or whether it's get to yourself to that place, that'll unlock how you can have these relationships. I, I'm going to take a detour because I think this will be helpful. If you want to imagine what leadership is, if you want to visualize leadership, Right. So imagine over here on, on, on one end, I have the outcomes I want to create in my business. And on the other end, on the other end, I have my ways of thinking and acting as a leader. So the question is, is, well, what connects your ways of thinking and acting to the outcomes that you're going to create? And what connects those is your ways of thinking and acting create relationships Relationships create activities and activities create outcomes. The reason that's important is in a business, all results, all outcomes happen in the context of relationships. So there aren't any outcomes that don't happen in the context of relationships. And the nature of those relationships is created by your ways of thinking and acting, how you're interacting with that, that leads to these results. So so the only way to create all these aligned activities that other people are doing that magnifies your ability to create greater and greater outcomes is through those relationships. Now, the challenge is, is that it's really hard. And now I'm going to say, what is the one attribute? It's really hard to go on that journey to figure out what are the right ways of thinking and acting. You learn it because other people give you feedback. You learn it because they say, you know, when you get angry, it undermines us or whatever it happens to be, whatever the feedback is. And so the number one attribute is coachability. And, and it's so important that I think I actually have come to believe that hiring people who are coachable is way more important than hiring people who might have the technical skills. Because the people who have the technical skills but aren't coachable turn into toxic rock stars in your business and they become a huge problem later in your business. But the people who are coachable from the beginning um, often can learn those technical skills. You might have just caught them a little earlier on the journey, but they're the ones who you're going to want to take with you through all of those changes. Thank you, Richard. That's a great answer. And then to dig a little deeper on finding those initial first few engagements. You mentioned what kind of leaders 
people need to seek and build relationship with. But in terms of practical steps they can make, what have you found works in your consulting business in terms of finding clients? So um, in very practical terms, think of it as a funnel, right? This is the sales funnel kind of thing. Um, so you want to generate interest. So you, you need to generate interest. There's lots of ways to generate interest, but you need to have a steady flow of conversations with new, new prospects, create that. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump a little bit. What you would like to do is then have whoever that prospect is, ideally the right prospect, you'd really like to do is you'd like them to then really open up and share everything with you. And you'd love it to be that they're your ideal client. In other words, you know, I want to work with mid-sized companies in, you know, fill in the in, in, in the blank, right? That's what I want to work with. And those leaders, and I want to do that. So that so you get to one of those leaders, and what you're dreaming of have happening is, is you're dreaming of them saying, Yep, yeah, let me just tell you everything that's going on and not, you know, and 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 answer all of your questions so that you can craft a solution that's great for me. That's what you're dreaming about. And the, the problem is, is getting from that prospect to that kind of meeting, that kind of, we call it a solution design meeting, but the problem is getting there. And getting, and, and getting there, it's the same prototyping challenge. It's what experiences are going to bring people from being a prospect to having the kind of relationship they would need to have with you, a level of trust, or to then enable you to get to that place where you would have a solution design meeting that's going to really enable you to design a solution and iterate and test it, whatever it looks like, that's going to enable you to really shine in your role. So, so the challenge is designing that experience in between just meeting and that solution design meeting. So, so how do you do that? And I think it's gonna be a different answer for, for whatever your business is. Um, I can tell you the different ways that I've tried to do it. Um, I created an online survey app that asked may, maybe 10 questions. And then based on the answers to those questions, it produced this 10 page report with videos, you know, that, that enabled people to, to walk through the stage that their company was in and kind of get clear about what the constraints are. And it didn't work because it was too inhuman. It was tremendously scalable, but it just didn't work. What led me to writing a book is it's a way to do that, right? Because, it, because someone can read the book and then they can really get a sense of you. And when somebody's read a book, they feel like they've spent, I don't know, what does it take, eight, 12 hours to read a book? So we've, I just, they just spent 12 hours with me. And I was able to structure the whole conversation. And so now when we get into the conversation, we've already got a relationship. The book created that relationship. I was just working on um, this morning, writing an article. And the, it's about being on a shared journey as a team, and how do you actually know you're in the journey together? And what, what would it mean to, to, you know, and how would you know your team is and isn't? But more specifically, what would you want to tell your team 
to deal with it. So I'm batting around this idea right now. And the idea is that instead of producing a report from it, what I'm thinking about is, could I get a leader on? And could I, in an hour, ask them a number of questions, basically interview them? And the output could be a video that they could use to communicate to their organization or their team the things they haven't been able to say. Like the, the, the difficult, like, like in, a, in a really articulate way. And my sense is, is that if I could do that in an hour and I could kind of structure it, I could actually then make a scalable process that would create the relationship. So for me, the, the art of selling consulting is not going straight to the full meeting. It's building the relationship to get there. And building the relationship to get there requires you to create a stairway of experiences. Um, you know, I, I, I'll say one other thing. There was, a, there was this guy, uh, I loved working with him and this going back 20 years. He was the CEO of a, a large company in the chicken and turkey processing business. And uh, he was running that his, the company was actually uh, a co-op of all these family chicken uh, farms that had come together and built, become this big, big business. And uh, I called him one day and, you know, got, somebody said, you'll, you, someone said, you should meet him. You guys would really have fun together. So I called him and we started chatting. And it was a great conversation. It wasn't any sales conversation, it's a great conversation. And then I uh, called him again and we kept talking. And then over the course, maybe we talked every month, every six weeks, and over the course of almost two years, you know, we just got just had this great rapport and he'd share what was going on. And, um, and you know, he'd asked along the way some things about me and our business and pricing and all this other stuff, but there was never any like even indication but I was just making sure I showed up and truly enjoyed the conversation and we had a good time. And I get this phone call on a Monday, I think it was. And it said, you know, could, could you be in Georgia tomorrow, you know, tomorrow morning? And here's the, you know, my secretary is going to send you the address. I'm like, all right, great. So changed my meeting, got on a plane the next morning, flew down to Georgia and you know, someone picks me up and I get kind of hustled to this thing and I, I walk into a room and I, we've, ne we've never met. We've only talked on the phone. We didn't have video at that time. We get, I get brought into this room. There's about 300 people in the room and he's standing up at the podium in front of them. And I walk in and he says, I want you to all meet Richard. I've been working with him for two years. <laughs> and that's how the consulting engagement began mm -hmm. because, because the experience was well ahead of the contract. Um, and yeah, and we worked together. We actually, it was, it was, it was quite wonderful. We worked until he retired. Um, but it was, it, those are, um, that's it. That's how you do it. The frustrating part is people want to do it faster than that. And so the puzzle you have to solve is if, if you can, if you can do it, that slow way, that old fashioned way, 
then the question is, is how do you create an experience of trust in an accelerated way with people? And that leads you in design, you know, then you have to think about, well, what am I, how do I design a breakthrough experience? Um, and that's the puzzle with, you know, that I've been trying to solve with these other kinds of in-between pieces, but that's, that's the challenge. That is a great story and a great example of having a long-term mindset and really helping your clients even before they become your clients. I mean, this is where pur purpose becomes really important. I, I dream of a world in which we can all play full out from the perspective of our roles for the good of the whole. When people are trapped and they feel like they can't have an opinion and they can't have a voice and they can't be empowered to solve the challenges that they're facing and the things that they're feeling, I find that really sad and it makes me kind of gets me right in my heart and it gets me upset. And so, so that's what I'm, you know, in my short time here, I'm trying to just find ways to unleash that, to enable that to happen. And, um, and a lot of the work that I've done in the structure, the, the methodologies I built have been about that. And so, so an example would be, I worked with this team, uh, well, with my German team as well. That we were, was, my German team and I were working with a team in Germany of an international company. The headquarters was, was down in one of the down under countries. And the, the, uh, uh, they had a big American division and the European division underneath it had, it was an EMEA division. It had Europe, the Middle East, you know, Africa, Right, they they they, um, they they actually had parts of Asia as well. It was sort of like the grab bag everything else um, for this these medical products. And the problem that that leader was facing, and he's someone who became a, a pretty good friend, um, was was he had all of these small markets, and he was competing with this one market, the U.S. And the U.S. had a lot more power, and he wasn't getting the resources he needed to grow and scale his businesses and um, publicly traded company. And it was making it very, very hard because you know, he would come with lots of little P&Ls and there was this big one. It was just, it was really tough. So um, we, we met at this Italian restaurant in Berlin. Um, and it honestly, it felt like we were, we were plotting to overthrow the emperor, right? It was sort of like everybody was speaking in hushed tones. All they wanted to do was get access to the resources to grow their business um, and in a, in, a, in a very politically charged context. So we brought the team together and we started developing as a team and we began to come up with an influencing plan and we analyzed the power dynamics in the large organization, power to promote, power to block. We got really, really clear about it. And it zeroed us in on this one uh, person who was, was uh, at the headquarters, parent headquarters, who had an awful lot of influence, but was also really blocking everything. She was blocking all of this. In fact, she was kind of involved in all of these different pieces. Um, and so we talked about, you know, how would we get to know her and how would we get to influence her? And somebody pointed out that, you know, she, she um, at this point in her life now lived alone and, um, and she was very social but she was living alone. And so she would eat dinner every night in front of the television. And if you called her, she'd turn off the TV and just really wanted to talk with someone. 
So this sounds kind of sneaky, but it wasn't sneaky. It was positively intended. We, they actually came up with a plan where they randomly called her at dinner time to get to know her. And over time, the people who were calling her, got, she got to understand their perspective, began to influence for them. That enabled us to introduce an entire set of concepts around strategy and other things to the parent company. The European division with the work we were doing started to outperform everyone else. And the leader of the European division, um, we ultimately went with him down under to, to meet with the board. And then he became the head of the whole company. The point is, is that we took his team from a place where they were frustrated and being crushed by the system, unable to have a voice, and by having them come together and work together and speak with a single voice, aligned and not in a, any kind of sneaky way, it's all about having clear logic, what's right for the whole. What are the right choices for the whole? Unassailable logic available to you. The truth will out and coming together around that and then using that to actually influence the entire system. And so, um, you know, for me, uh, that that's kind of to the heart of my purpose. That's that 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 would that's that. I mean, it sounds silly to other people. They kind of look at that. For me, I get a tear in my eye that they actually went from that situation to being fully empowered to play full out to getting to a place where they really began to enjoy their jobs and began to bring all their creativity to it and to, and, and to do that. And so, I just would say, you know, everyone's going to have something that they believe in that's uniquely theirs, but get in touch with it. Because if you can get in touch with that, just focus on that. And it can, and that's where you're coming from. And that's the value, the source of the value. Then you don't get anxious about the short-term results. You're able to build longer-term relationships. You're able to, right? It just, um, you're able to just kind of stay the course. Thank you, Richard. We are getting close to wrapping up the session. Thank you so much for sharing so much of a very, very valuable knowledge and advice. What are two, three aha moments, realizations you had in the last few years that were transformative for your career, for your business, and for your life? I mean, the, the real insights were, were painful. <laughs> I mean, just painful. Um, one was, you know, I probably one of the most significant ones for me was I, I sold this the the largest most at that time biggest project of my career, and um, and I found myself in in a difficult political situation. Um, it wasn't my my doing. It was it had been created by the context. These three companies were merging and. There was lots of stuff going on, and um, I, you know, I, I was standing. I was working with this this uh, one leader, and uh, we were up in front of um, kind of this new team that was coming together. And uh, yeah, basically, I. I, I can't say I lost control because I never had any control of the situation, but I found myself sidelined 
in the in this and and basically because of the politics i had to sit and just listen for three days when i was supposed to be leading and everything that i had tried to sell them on project plans and all of this it was dismissed in the first 10 minutes of the meeting and it was really painful to sit there right like 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 you know these are these were quite aggressive people and what i and i was really confused why that had happened because i run strategy practices up to that point and i had i'd done all these things and 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 i just couldn't figure out what had gone what how i had allowed myself to get in the situation where i'd been you know i really so i you know i thought my career was done i mean i know these are all just fantasies we tell ourselves but you know the story is telling some so i went and um signed up for to to be for a leadership development program and signed up and eventually went through it to do a coaching program and uh my wife did the exact same thing. And some of these fundamental ideas about, you know, um, taking responsibility for how your ways of thinking and acting influence and impact others, um, taking responsibility for your own development. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was probably the biggest aha, but I wouldn't call it a momentary aha it was much more it was just much more of uh you know uh, a, an ongoing journey that i'm still on with all of the pieces around it um but i but that's ultimately what led to my wife and i having the i guess you'd say the the, the courage to take a choice like let's move to germany and to just decide that we were going to you know, it's our lives. Let's create, right? Let's create, choose, and not, not, right? And all of that kind of fed everything else. So, so I would sort of instead of answering multiple ahas, I kind of say that was the really big one. But what happened is, is that that has all that is also translated into all my work because it's translated into me kind of being able to recognize when I'm working with leaders who haven't had that, or they're they're really not. They're really unaware and unconscious of what they're what they're creating. They haven't they haven't been able to uh, they haven't learned how to be intentional about it and relaxed about it and confident about it and and those sorts of things. Um, and so the biggest insight is is that if I can't see it in myself, how can I expect myself to tell other people that they should be able to see it in themselves? Richard, for our listeners and viewers. Tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., what practical steps would you like them to take to start applying some of the things that you shared with them today? So I would suggest read my book. <laughs> uh, everything I've been talking about is in some form or another. You, 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 through our conversation, I think you get a sense of the personality behind it a little more and some of the more personal pieces. But, um, you know, the book is called navigate the swirl. It's called Seven Crucial Conversations for Business Transformation. Um, you're all, every, all of the listeners are going to know what the swirl is. The swirl is that, that kind of 
self-absorbing state where there's all of an organization or a team where there's always another problem to solve and always another drama. And the question is, is how you, how you escape that state, right? And that includes the state of people being trapped in their roles and not really being able to play full out. It's all part of the swirl. And the seven crucial conversations can be, you can think of them, if you think of the swirl as a giant maelstrom, you know, big whirlpool, the question is, how do you get out of the whirlpool? And how do you do it together, not just alone? And so the seven conversations, imagine it as a rope to get out. And on the bottom of the rope is purpose and a, a, a conversation called activate purpose. And at the top of the rope is a conversation called implementing initiatives. And the question is, is well, look, if it's not connected to purpose, why bother? especially if it's not even connected to your own purpose, why bother? But on the other hand, if it's not connected to implementing and creating tangible results in the world, also why bother? So those are the two anchor points. And what it lays out is the five conversations in between. Around purpose, activating purpose is the first, then driving focus, which is what journey are we on? What are our priorities? How do we know where the constraints are? Shifting mindset. What does it mean to be coachable? What are we in together? How do we how do we create an experience of trust, right? Then it takes us into the most difficult conversation of all, which is the conversation around capabilities and roles. That's the one that most change initiatives or they crash and burn because it's where you're asking people to do something for the good of the business and maybe they wanna do something else. And so if they don't show up in that conversation, ready to, to, to shift roles and to, to, to learn new things, it's going to crash and burn. And then that moves you into interdependencies, all the connections between us, moves us into strategies. How do you actually create and align strategies towards competitive advantage? What is competitive advantage? What is a business? And then implementing initiatives. And so um, that the book is a distillation of 30 years of working with all different kinds of companies. And what I can tell you is it's very practical. There is nothing in the book that hasn't worked multiple times with multiple clients. It's all been validated. It's all been tested and validated. Um, and the language has, has evolved to where it is now. And, 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 and the reason is, is because every single one of these terms has been a term that has almost has gone viral in a different context with, you know, maybe it may not go viral in your company, all of them, but some of them will, but all of them have gone viral in one company or another as sort of shared language that people start using and talking. Um, so that's what's in the book. So, and um, if you wanna find out more about me or my company, uh, you can go to our website. Um, we're in the process of redoing it because because of the, the book, but it's going to have a bunch of materials on it um, consistently more and more. Um, at the back of the book, there's a glossary of terms, uh, many of which you've heard me use during this. Um, and those are all really clearly defined. The, the website is going to have a wiki with all of those terms and a lot more. So if you're building a company or you're a consultant or you, and you, you want to know what some of these terms are, you want and you want definitions that kind of that fit through this worldview of a company as a social system. It's probably going to be, be a good resource to check out. Thank you, Richard. 
this is a great place to end this session. Thank you very much for spending this time with us. And for everyone who have been with us during this session, thank you for tuning in. You can check out Richard's book. It's called Navigate This World. And I'll see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.